Jesus is preparing an eternal home for anyone who trusts in him as the way, the truth, and the life. Until then, we get a taste of that home through the family of the church. And like a family who's blessed with more and more children, our church family needs a larger home to serve the people that God will bless us with in the years to come. Home Away From Home is our initiative to provide the necessary resources to be able to build a new place that our community and church can call home. It's a place where our friends, families, and neighbors will experience the freedom of the gospel and the strength of a vibrant church community. On the 10 and a half acres we own next door, we're planning a first phase that will allow us to double our capacity in terms of space and seating. We'll have an 800 seat flat floor auditorium for Sunday services, student ministry, and special events. Spacious kids classrooms for babies, toddlers, preschoolers, and elementary kids, including a classroom specifically devoted to special needs kids and families. We'll have beautiful open spaces with grass, trees, picnic tables, and shade for adults to linger and kids to play. And at the front of the campus will be a big cross as a picture of our unapologetic love for Jesus Christ. To move forward on this project, we'll need to give $1.8 million over the next three years over and above our regular giving. As we all give generously and sacrificially, this vision will become a reality. I've been here for five years. My first impression, love, welcoming, love, warmth, um, friendly faces. I love Redemption Gateway because it is where I have felt free from my sin. Uh, to find Jesus at a time in my life where I felt alone and darkness. There's so much brokenness here in the valley, so much brokenness in our own community, even in our own home. Uh, there's struggles for sure and I'm excited that there will be a place not just for my family and for my kids but many people who don't even know God to be able to walk in those doors and still feel the same thing that I feel every single day since I've been coming here and that's the love of Christ and if we didn't have that I don't know where we'd be today. We believe Jesus when he says there's no way to the Father except through him. May God use this initiative so that many people would find an eternal home through Jesus. Can I start over? <laughs> I need a, like a donut at the end of the, behind the camera or something. <laughs> so weird. Shake it out. My name is Christina and Redemption Gateway is my home. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Luke, and it's great to see you. Great to have so many of you here with us this morning as we kick off this uh, brand new series. This is an exciting day uh, for us as a church. Uh, you could tell that maybe as you came in and you saw kids getting their faces painted. Even uh, the kids pastor, Mark Andrus, was out there painting faces. I said, are you qualified to do this? He said, not at all. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but they're having fun, and uh, just a really exciting thing is as we kick off the, 
the vision that's behind the plans to multiply. I can't tell you how many times over the last number of years uh, people have said, uh, what's the plan for the building? What's the plan for the land? And so to be able to share some of that with you, to have renderings and pictures and stuff like that, to get to, to show you that's really exciting. If you haven't seen those pictures very much or, or if you want to, out in the lobby, if you missed it, make sure as you leave today, uh, you stop and you uh, look at, the, there's a 3D model out there and some renderings. You can kind of get some plans and get your questions answered and some stuff like that. It's, it's really fun. Um, you know, this week I had a pop-up, for those of you that are on Facebook, you know that Facebook has this, uh, you know, what you were doing on this date however many years ago. And uh, something popped up that I had kind of, in a sense, forgotten that that was this week. And uh, it was eight years ago uh, this past week that we had our very first preview service as a church. Uh, we had had this dream to start the church. That was kind of in 2008. We were uh, with a small group of people planning to start a church and uh, do ministry. And it was October 26th of 2008 that we did our first preview service. We decided, you know, as we're figuring stuff out, let's do kind of a once a month service and then we'll have a, a kind of a grand opening in January. And so it was eight years ago this week that we had that first gathering. Uh, there were about 120 adults there. And uh, there were about 1,200 donuts. Uh, let me show you this picture. Um, so what happened was we, you know, we wanted to have a kind of a great environment. And so uh, we said, hey, let's get some donuts. And, and somebody asked, well, how many donuts should we get? And I said, I don't know, get about 100. And so we communicated with one of the local Dunkin' Donuts. Hey, we need about 100. And they brought us 100 dozen. And they had gotten up at like two in the morning to bake and to do all this. And they haul, they come over, with all, right? We sent everybody home with their own box of donuts. And uh, they said, hey, that actually was our mistake. And so it was kind of a funny and a memorable thing. So that happened that day. And then I came across this picture as well. Um, and if you look at that, that's, the, that's from the back of the room over there at ASU Polytechnic. And if you look closely, you can see there the title of the message that I did, which was Jesus' Prayer for His Church. We looked at, over the three months of that preview services, we looked at John 17. John 17 is where Jesus, having just spent those last hours with his disciples, preparing them for him to go to the cross, he then spends time with his father and he prays for his church. And the whole heart there was to say, what does Jesus want for us as his church? What does Jesus hope for his church, right? There's, feels like there's churches everywhere. Do we really need another church? Yeah, we do need another church. Why? And what does Jesus want it to be? And so eight years ago this week, that's what we were doing. And now eight years later, we're averaging a hundred dozen people. <laughs> and, uh, and the question's still the same. What does Jesus want for his church? And that's why in this series, we're going to look at John 14 through 17, and we'll close the series in four weeks looking at John 17, Jesus' prayer for his church. And I'm honestly not smart enough to have planned it like that with that kind of timing. Um, but I think what that shows you is that we started the church because we believed more people needed what only Jesus could give. There are more people in our community that didn't have Christ. There were more people in our community who were stuck in their faith. There were more people moving to our community and not enough gospel witness. 
And so we believed we need to start a new church because there's something Jesus and Jesus alone can provide and more people need it. That's why we started the church. And the reason we are continuing the church, the reason we are going to expand our church next door is because that's still true. We still believe that there are too many people who need what only Jesus can give. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we begin to look in John chapter 14. Uh, Just so you understand kind of what we're going to do is I'm not going to teach verse by verse through every part of John 14 through 17, uh, but this week I'll hit some highlights from John 14, next week John 15, the week after that John 16, and we'll conclude with John 17. Uh, This has been known as the Upper Room Discourse. And this is the night of the Last Supper. Jesus is instructing his disciples on what really, really matters. Few of you have had opportunities where you have talked with a loved one in the closing moments of their life. And you know you listen in, you lean in, you pay attention. This is really important. And while the Sermon on the Mount was kind of the kickoff of Jesus' public ministry, this is now the crowds are gone and Jesus is with these disciples who he's invested in significantly. Actually, by this point, by John 14, Judas has already left and he's now with the 11. And he's saying, this is what I want for you. And we get to listen in, we get to peer in to that scene, that room, that upper room where Jesus had just shared this precious moment with his disciples. He had just washed their feet and he was about to go to the cross for them and for us. We're asking this question, what does Jesus want for his church? As we think about the future and building a building, what kind of a church, what kind of a people, what should drive us as followers of Christ? That's what we're looking at. So in John 14, 1 through 11, here's what we're going to cover this morning, is we're going to discuss the trouble we feel, the home Jesus provided, and the only way home. The trouble we feel, the home Jesus provided, and the only way home. So if you have your Bible, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 14. Jesus says to his disciples there, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? It's interesting. Jesus there begins with this exhortation, let not your hearts be troubled. That word troubled, it literally means shaken or stirred or unsettled or thrown into confusion. In fact, John uses that same word uh, back in chapter 5. Some of you maybe have read this story, some of you haven't, but there's a place where at the pool of Siloam, there are all these people with uh, physical ailments who are hanging around this pool, and it was believed that at some point the angel of the Lord would stir up the waters, and the first person into the water would get healing. And that word stirred is this same word, troubled. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be stirred, be shaken, be tremoring. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Listen, I'm going to my father's house, to my father's home, and there I'm going to prepare a place for you. Why would the disciples be troubled? Well, It's the last night of Jesus' life, and he's been telling them in all these ways, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be crucified. They don't fully understand it. He's told them even at this Last Supper, one of you will betray me. And they can tell something's big going on, but they don't have eyes to fully understand it, and they're troubled, they're shaken. And in fact, if you look back in chapter uh, 13 and in chapter 12, there's a couple places where Jesus himself says, I'm troubled, I'm deeply troubled, I'm deeply shaken. And they're seeing, 
the anguish of the Savior as he's thinking, I'm about to go to the cross and all that he's experiencing and his his soul is shaken and stirred and he says, guys, listen, I know that I'm troubled, but I don't want you to be troubled because I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, the disciples were troubled, they were shaken, they were stirred, but aren't we as well today? I mean, how many of us really feel totally settled? It's a pretty small number. We're shaken. Our lives are uncertain. Our lives are hurting. Our lives need hope. A number of months ago, I had the privilege of praying for so many of you. The Sunday before I went on a kind of prayer retreat, I had asked all of you to fill out prayer requests. And I think I've told you this, maybe I haven't. Um, But the number one word that I feel like I saw on about a thousand of those prayer request cards was the word healing. And the word healing wasn't mostly used in like, hey, pray for healing from cancer or from this ailment or this physical thing. It was mostly relational healing. I need healing from my past. And I went through those and I prayed and I felt so hopeless, or not so hopeless, so helpless. Like there was so little I could do. Like I couldn't fix this. And I don't know how many times I prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, I don't know the full extent of this situation or or what needs healed, but you do. And would you provide that sort of healing? And it just showed me like we are a people, even as us who have a, a rock that we stand on in Jesus, we're still troubled, we're still shaken. How much more is the world out there that has no anchor in Christ shaken and stirred? The question is, why are things so unsettled? Why are we so unsettled? And there's an interesting answer that Jesus seems to kind of indirectly give in verse 2, which is the reason things are so unsettled is because we're homeless. We're longing for a home. Notice what Jesus says. He says, don't be troubled. Uh, Believe in God. That may actually be a statement of fact, like you believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus says, listen, I know you're troubled. I know you're shaken. I know you're stirred, but take some hope in this. There is a home that I'm preparing for you. And part of why you feel so shaken and stirred and troubled is because you are spiritually homeless. Think about our need for home. Like, like, have you ever thought as people, why are we so connected to places? There's certain places where as soon as you go there, you feel a certain way. As soon as you go there, certain memories, good or bad, start flooding back. We're connected so much to places. I wonder this all the time as I drive around town and you pull up to these intersections where there's a farmhouse and a lot of land that they have not yet sold to a developer. And I'm going, why are you holding on to that? Like, cash it in, baby. But the reason, in many cases, I don't know, I've never knocked on the door. My guess is the reason is because that's an important place. Or they're just waiting. (laughs) But it's an important place. And even if they eventually do sell, it's like, oh, this is hard because my dad was here and my parents were here and this home's been in our family and there's something about being attached to that place. Why do you all, every Sunday, sit in the same seats? I'm looking around, I'm seeing you. Stocktons, you've moved today, but Bobby, you're always over there, and, and Ron, you're always right there. And, and I mean, I just like, why are you all, in the, you have your little neighborhood, right? It, that's where you feel comfortable. 
Never, you never think, oh, I'll just go sit somewhere. No, you, you want to be in the same place. Why do we spend as a culture so much money traveling to go visit family and go be home? I read a thing that said that it's estimated about a billion dollars a year is spent in the United States for people who are from other countries to go visit home. Why is fall so hard in Arizona? For all of you who aren't from here like me. Right, and you watch Notre Dame play on football and you hate them, but that's okay. All the people there, you're at the aerial shot, the trees are changing and the people are in sweatshirts and you're like, I hate fall here. <laughs> Why is homelessness such a damaging thing to the human psyche? I mean, one of the most difficult things you could experience as a human being is to be homeless. Why? Why is it that place, that home, why? Well, here's why. It's because as human beings, we're made in the image of a personal God. Therefore, we are personal. We are persons. And persons are always in a location. We are not ideas. We are not concepts. Uh, We are not disembodied, esoteric things floating out there. We are embodied and localized persons and therefore place is really important and Jesus says part of why you're so disturbed part of why you're so unsettled is because you don't have a place now these guys had been from this area I mean they weren't homeless they had a they had homes they had families what's Jesus saying Jesus saying listen as long as the human condition is that you're separated from God you'll be spiritually homeless. And here's the thing, we don't just want a house, we want a home. Here's how I wrote this as I was reflecting on this. I said a home is where people know who we truly are and love us anyway, where it feels comfortable and familiar, where we can just be ourselves, where we can rest and recover, where we can always come for help no matter how tough the circumstance or how bad we've blown it, where we can share good meals and unexpected laughs, where the conversations can be both mundane and monumental, where we want to bring our friends. And here's the thing, God created us for a home like that. God created us in a home like that. You can read about it in Genesis 1 and 2. It's the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are home. There's a place. They're made in God's image as localized persons in that garden. And in that garden, there isn't the kind of trouble and stirred and shaken turmoil that we experience. They are in perfect relationship with God, closeness with God. It says that they walk with him in the cool of the day. They're in unbelievable harmony with one another. They're equal but different. And Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. Think about that. There's no embarrassment. There's nothing to hide. They're totally in harmony. They're understanding and aware of themselves. In fact, their understanding is such that they're not even thinking about themselves. They're just sort of self-forgetful. And don't you know that that's one of the indications of home? When you feel a little out of place, you're always thinking, well, I feel a little out of place, and this doesn't exactly feel right. But when you're at your most comfortable, you don't even think about yourself. You just forget. And that's how they are. And they're in this beautiful place, this gorgeous paradise that God has created for them. They are home. And then in Genesis 3, they take a step 
toward homelessness. God had said, listen, on the day that you eat of this fruit that I'm commanding you not to eat, you'll die. And they didn't die physically, though that would eventually happen. Their bodies would eventually wear out. But they died spiritually. And all of that harmony, all of that homeness was broken. Now all of a sudden, because of that sin, because of that disobedience, because of the distrust of God, their connection with him is broken. Rather than walking with God in the cool of the day, they're hiding from God, it says. And in fact, when when God comes to Adam and says, Adam, what did you do? You see that the harmony of Adam and his wife is broken because he says, well, the woman that you gave me, God, So the harmony with her is broken, but it shows he's even blaming God. God, it's the woman you gave me. It's your fault, God. Now there's thorns and there's trouble and the work is toil. Rather than being enjoyable and pleasurable and life-giving, the work in the ground is difficult and the man and the woman are covering themselves with fig leaves. They know they're naked. They know that everything's not okay. They know there's something to hide. They're no longer home. And God kicks them out of the garden. Says, I don't want you to come back into this garden and eat from the tree of life because if you ate from the tree of life in this condition, you would be permanently homeless. So I'm gonna displace you from the garden. I'm gonna kick you out of this home and you're gonna wander and I'm gonna actually protect this, this garden with these flaming swords and no one can come back into this garden unless they go under the flaming sword. And as a result, you and I are not ever home. Now, we may be in a place we really like. We may be surrounded by a fire or a certain smell or mom's cooking or whatever it is, and it may go, oh yeah, this feels like home. You may have a chance to leave Arizona in the fall and go to a football game and wear a sweatshirt and go, oh, this feels like home. (laughs) But even that doesn't last. Because the worries come back, and the trouble, and the shakenness, and all that's alienated and distorted because of sin returns. And so we experience real trouble. And all that trouble actually points to the fact that we have a true home. Here's how C.S. Lewis said it. He said this, a baby feels hunger. Well, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well. There is such thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And you were made for another world. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. It's called paradise restored. It's called life in relationship with God and his good creation and one another without the alienation of sin. Lewis is saying, listen, you have this longing. Even in the moments when you get to the place that you feel home, it's never quite fully satisfied. And all of that longing is pointing to this fact that you need a home. What Jesus says in this passage is that he went to prepare a home. So, secondly, the home that Jesus prepared. Look again at verse two. He says, in my father's house, uh, you'd say home, in my father's home are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be 
also. Jesus says, hey, don't be troubled. I'm preparing a place. I'm preparing a home. I'm going to my father's house to prepare this place for you. The place you were kicked out of, I'm going there. And I'm going to prepare a place for all y'all, right? That's what it is actually in the Greek is all y'all. It's, it's not just you individually. It's, it's all y'all. Right, this is going to be a community of people in a father's house, connected to the father, in harmony with one another, on God's good, renewed creation, living in a sinless place that feels truly and is truly home. And this is a physical place, right? This is why I think it's so uh, unfortunate that so many of us have this idea of heaven that's like this disembodied, esoteric thing. You're not a disembodied, esoteric thing. You're an embodied, localized person. And God's creation will be renewed. The last chapters of the Bible are not about us hitting the eject button and heading off to heaven. They're about heaven coming down to earth and making all things new. You know I can't do a message like this without quoting from Tim Keller. And so here's what Tim Keller says. He's a New York pastor and author. He says this, I don't know what you think about heaven, but let me tell you something. It's a place where you eat. It's a place where you love. Some of you are like, you had me at eat. <laughs> I'm in. It's a place where you love. It's a place where you laugh. It's a place where you learn. There's a concreteness about it. The Father's house contains the new heavens and the new earth. What will that be like? If this world, with all of its seas and canyons and valleys and peaks and airs and immensities and infinities, with all of its glory and all of its beauty, if this is the kind of world God gives to people who are his enemies, what do you think he's going to give to people who are his friends? Jesus says, listen, don't be troubled. Don't be shaken. Don't be stirred. You have a home, and I'm going to prepare it for you. It's a place, it's a place where you as a localized embodied person will eat and laugh and play and learn. It's a place. But then notice in John 14, three, this is an amazing thing. This is an amazing highlight of this new place. Here's what I would expect verse three to say. I would expect verse three to say, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you there, that where I am you may be also. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to prepare a place and I'm going to take you there. Do you see what he says? He says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. That is the joy of the new heavens and the new earth. That is the joy of our home. Yes, we eat. Yes, we play. Yes, we breathe air. Yes, the valleys and the canyons and the mountains are spectacular. But the highlight of our home is that Jesus is there. Right? I'm going to take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. I hope you know that that's always been God's heart. Right? That was God walking with them in the cool of the day. And God cut them out of the garden because he said, I can't truly be with you until this sin is dealt with. But then Jesus comes. 
And do you remember what the prophet, if you've ever been to a Christmas story, do you remember what the prophet said the name would be? Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's always been what Jesus has been about. I came so you could be with me, Jesus says. And I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you'll be with me. That's the home Jesus prepared. Now let me just say this, if you want heaven, and you want the new heavens and new earth, and you want to eat and laugh and play and do all these things and work without thorns and thistles, and if you want all that, but you don't want Jesus, you don't want heaven. You wouldn't be able to stand it, because he's the main attraction. Well, not only is he the main attraction, but Jesus is, lastly, the only way home. He's prepared a place for us. He's prepared a home. He's prepared the place we've always longed for, and he's the way to get there. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, uh, we do not know the way you're going. How can we know the way? Or we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is saying, hey guys, you know the way. I'm the way. They go, we're not sure. And he goes, yeah, you do. You know more than you think. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm the path to the Father. Why? Because if you've known me, you've known the Father. He continues in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. Jesus is the only way to the Father because the Father is in him. Jesus is not an ordinary teacher. Jesus is not merely a prophet. Jesus is not just a miracle worker. Jesus is God. And he is the one who will go under the flaming sword to bring us back home. That's what Jesus will do. And therefore he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Notice he doesn't say, I'm a way to the Father. I'm one of many truths. I'm one of a variety of paths that will lead to life. He says, no, 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 I'm the way. I'm the truth, I'm the life. And in case you were like, well, does he really mean like the way? He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I realize some of you hear that and you just go, oh my gosh, that is so exclusive and narrow. Like, seriously? You really believe that like in a world of billions of people, there's one way to God, there's one truth, there's one life? I mean, come on, like that's a little narrow. Now, I I get why you would have that objection, But that's actually not the most amazing thing about this. By the way, every belief is exclusive and narrow. 
right? Even the person who says, listen, it's arrogant to insist that your religion is right and to convert others to it. Have you ever heard someone say that? That's arrogant. You shouldn't, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't insist that your religion is right and try to convert others to it. To which I always want to reply, really? Are you trying to convince me? Like, aren't you doing what you say you shouldn't do? You're trying to convince me that something's true? We're all trying to convince each other that something's true. That's not the amazing thing about this passage. The amazing thing about this is that it's God coming to us. That's the amazing thing. The amazing thing is that it's God who's initiating a path back home. It's God who's saying, I'll go under the flaming sword for you. It's, it's God. Whoever has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. God is pursuing. That's the amazing thing. The amazing thing is that we would scorn him, that we would dis, distrust him, that we wouldn't care about him, and that he would keep pursuing, which is why Jesus said in some of the greatest verses in the whole Bible, in John three sixteen and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Listen, Jesus is the only way home. And that creates an urgency to our mission. That creates an urgency to our existence on the planet. That creates an urgency for us as we think about the vision and future of our church. Jesus is the only way. This is why we plant new churches. And I don't know if you know this, we don't always do a great job of informing everybody about all these things. But in 2016, did you know that all of your regular giving helped support 11 church plants that have a combined attendance of over 2,000 people? As close as Queen Creek Marketplace in the Harkins, and as far as Vancouver, or San Francisco, or Portland, some of the least church cities in the country. That's why we devote those resources to that. That's why we build those relationships. That's why I spend sometimes probably more time than I should with other church planters, because I want to see more people meet Jesus. And when we have a qualified, ready guy to plant, we will send him in a nanosecond. When we have somebody that's ready and that's called and that's passionate and hungry to go do that, we will do it. And I can't wait for us to give birth to a church ourselves. It's fun to, you know, participate in baby showers, but it would be great to have a baby. <laughs> and why do we do that? Because Jesus is the only way. It's why we support new ministry works in Turkey. Because in Turkey, there are less than 8,000 people who trust in Jesus in a country of more than 80 million and if Jesus is the only way, and if Jesus is God coming for us, then we have to get behind that and pray for that and support that, and that's why we do that. This is why we support Fellowship of Christian Athletes and Hope Women's Center and House of Refuge and OCJ, which is a, is a number of ministries that deal with foster homes in our area, because all of those are things. We want athletes, and we want women in troubled family situations, and we want foster kids, and we want people experiencing homelessness just a few miles away to be touched by the gospel. That's why we do that. And that's why we're going to double our capacity by building a building next door for our church. Because everybody spends eternity somewhere. 
And we want as many people as possible, through as many channels as possible, to find a home in Jesus. Listen, look me in the eyes here. I have never, ever cared about us being a big church. But I care desperately that people follow Jesus. Being a big church is a hassle. Just to be honest. But we're going to be willing to do that. And we're going to work hard to keep it small and help you connect and help you take steps and help you grow in your faith. We're already a big church. But that's never been what this is about. That's never been the goal. The goal is we want people to meet and find a home in Jesus. And the church is a taste. The church is a home away from that eternal home. We're a place where people get to experience the love of Christ, experience a community of people. Oftentimes, uh, they're coming from other parts of the country, and they don't have even an earthly home, and this becomes a kind of refuge for them. And the church is a place that gets to give people a taste of that home. So, how should we respond as we kick this series off? Well, a few ways. First, we should put our trust in Jesus. Rather than giving in to the trouble, rather than giving in to being shaken and stirred, and the circumstances of life, they are shaking, they are difficult, they are tumultuous, and in the midst of that trembling, what does Jesus say in verse one? Let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. That word believe means trust, we're going to trust Jesus. And I'm going to call you today, those of you who do not yet trust Jesus, he's offering you home. He's offering you a place to have peace, to be settled, to in the midst of your trials and circumstances to be grounded in his love. Put your trust in him. Pray to him. Ask him to forgive your sin. Ask him to allow you to grow a relationship with him. Confess that you have tried to do life too often, too much on your own and trust him. So we need to put our trust in him. And not just the people who have never done that, but the people who continue, who, who continue to have a relationship with Jesus. We have to keep trusting in Jesus. Jesus is the one who left his home so that we could have a home. Jesus is the one who endured trouble so we eventually wouldn't have to. We should put our trust in Jesus. Second thing is we should pray for our friends and our family and our neighbors who are spiritually homeless. I hope that as I'm talking and as we're thinking through this, I hope you're thinking of names and people and relationships and faces and kids who if life keeps going the way it's going are not gonna meet Jesus. And their life now is gonna be turmoil and their life forever is gonna be homeless. I hope you're thinking about that. I hope that grieves you. I hope that burdens you. I hope, I mean, I just trust. So many of the prayer requests you gave were for names of people that you want to meet Jesus. Keep that going. Pray that God would allow people to be exposed to the gospel through your life and through our church and through other people and through other leaders and through other churches. Pray that people would find a home in Christ. Pray for that. And so in order to give you a concrete way, a concrete reminder, um, we have put under your seat today these gray wristbands. 
And uh, these gray wristbands just say home on them. And here's what I want to ask you to do. You don't have to wear this forever, okay? But I'm asking you that for the next uh, part of our series, from now until November 20th, November 20th is the last day of this series. November 20th is the day uh, where you're going to have an opportunity to commit to be part of this project. I want you to wear this until that day. If you've got a big wrist like me, it's a little snug. And I hope that reminds you to pray. Here's what I want you to do. Every time you think of this bracelet, every time you look at it, pray. And don't just pray, God, uh, save people. Pray for a person by name. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to maybe even right now think of one or two people that you would like to meet, have meet Christ, that you see on a regular basis in our community. Let, let's, let's take this out of the ethereal and let's make it local. So not just like your, your you know, uncle who lives in another state. Like who are people you see and know, interact with, that you want to see God touch their life? Every time you look at this bracelet, pray for them. You know, one of the things we did before we moved into this building, before we laid carpet, is we gave out Sharpie markers and we asked everyone to write names of people on the floor. Write names of people you're praying for. I know of at least two people, Paul and Jose, who have come to faith in Christ and their names are written on the floor. My kids' names are written on the floor, at least the first two. I'm excited to write the others' names on the next floor. We're praying for them. We want a next generation of people to know Christ. And so don't just trust Christ yourself, but pray for your friends and family. And then here's the last thing is we should respond by participating in this initiative. I'm asking you to help us create a short-term home so that people can have an eternal home. I'm asking you to pray about making a generous commitment on November 20th, to come that day with a one-time gift of what you would sacrificially give that day as well as what you will give over the next three years. I realize what I'm asking. That's a sacrifice. That takes generosity. That takes commitment. And let me tell you, here's the most important number in this whole initiative. Can I tell you the most important number? It's 100. 100. Because 100 is the percentage of people that call this church home that I'm calling to participate. If you consider this your church home, participate. Give something. Be part of this. Pray. Invite friends. Help us continue to be a church that is focused on the glory of Jesus and making him known. I'm calling you to participate in this initiative. I'm participating in this initiative. My wife and I are talking continually about what this means for us and the areas we're gonna have to cut back in our life to be able to really do the kind of commitment we wanna do. Join me in that, be part of that. It is worth it because people need an eternal home in Christ. Let me just share with you uh, what is in uh, one of the brochures that you should have been sent uh, some time back. Uh, Jimmy Lau has been a chairperson uh, for this initiative and uh, significant part of our church from the beginning. And here's what Jimmy writes um, in his note on the brochure. He said, about two years ago, my son Noah accepted Christ as his savior. He was baptized on Easter Sunday and shared how God had changed his life at Redemption Summer Camp. God used not only my wife and I, but close friends, mentors, and pastors at Gateway to lead Noah toward his decision to follow Christ. This is why giving to the initiative to build is so important to me. 
It represents an investment in myself, my kids, and others in the community. And this is the line I loved. It'll be a temporary home that introduces people to an eternal home. A place where many people will hear the word of God and of his grace, where many will find forgiveness, salvation, purpose, and hope. Let's pray.